Psalm 19, um, verse 1 through 14. Let's give our attentive hearing, for this is God's word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for calling us to worship you, to sing of who you are, what you've done, to confess before you all that we are, to find our reassurance in you once again, and now uh, to feed on your living word, our daily bread. So God, feed us, feed your children. Help us to taste and see once again that uh, you are good, that we need you, uh, that your word is our path of life. So God, uh, do this work in us through your spirit, through our helper, our teacher. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're continuing our series, uh, Why We Do What We Do, uh, looking at each element of our service and how uh, the, the elements of the service are not rooted in any tradition or uh, personal preference or cultural preference, but um, in, in God's word. And we come to perhaps the most central purpose for gathering uh, together as community of believers, and that is to receive from God his word, uh, to receive the word of the Lord, and to which we say always, thanks be to God. Um, well, why is that? Uh, why is it so essential that you you come here every week and uh, maybe more than once a week and just sit here and listen. Um, well, on the one hand, maybe it's self-explanatory. Uh, if, if this 
if this is the word of the Lord, uh, what could be more important than listening to this, ingesting this, um, and living according to it? What could be more important for us than feeding upon the word of the Lord if, if we really believe this is the word of uh, the Lord? We in the Reformed tradition, we go as far as to believe, as a man named Heinrich Bullinger once said, that even the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Um, if it is preached by preacher ordained by God, consistent with the word of God, we believe the very word of God is spoken when we hear the word of God preached. It makes sense why sometimes preachers wear those dark robes that cover themselves is to communicate to the congregation, this is not coming from me, the preacher per se, but from the Lord. They're hiding as much of themselves as possible in that. Not that I'm going to start doing that, but I'm saying I get it. And that is why we come and we simply listen and we subject ourselves to the so-called authority of God's word, authority of God's word. And before I go any further, I want to address something because there is a um, pretty serious cultural challenge that we face when it comes to that, isn't there? Because you and I live in a culture that says the only authority uh, you should listen to when it comes to navigating your life, defining who you are, um, what you do with your life, is not the word of God, but the word of your heart the word of your own heart. It's by being true to yourself that you find true fulfillment in life. And I notice that it's a theme that has been crescendoing in our culture from my childhood all the way to my children's uh, generation, all the way from Mulan to Moana, all the way from when will my reflection show who I am inside to and the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. Come what may, I know the way. I am Moana. It's, it's shaping our children's generation just as it shaped my uh, generation. This self-determinative take on identity. Even morality. It, it's by looking into my heart that I find the, the moral compass for my life um, and wisdom for life. And that, in turn, makes any uh, authority outside of me uh, the villain, an existential threat to my autonomy. Authority of any kind uh, is now the hindrance to personal happiness and, and fulfillment. Submission is defeat. Submission is to surrender happiness because it keeps me from being true to who I am and how I feel about uh, myself. Now, before we go to the, the biblical counter to that, uh, it's worth pointing out, and for some of you, this is a recap, that this way of life is not even sustainable uh, in and of itself. Uh, why? For the very simple reason that, one, uh, we, we do not really understand our own hearts because it's often filled with contradicting thoughts and emotions. And two, because of time, because over time we change. 
And we all cease to identify with what we identified with yesterday. And that's not a uniquely religious experience, is it? That's just, that's just a common human experience. What we find in our hearts today may not be what we find in our hearts tomorrow. When we think back on our teenage years or childhood, I, I would venture to say none of you in this room would think, man, I wish I had all the wisdom I had back then. What I would give to trade the mat- level of maturity I had back then for my level of maturity today. Uh, if, if you're anything like me, you feel something quite opposite. I was so immature back then. I was such a fool. I was so lost. Uh, even when I think back on, you know, just meeting my wife for the first time 11 years ago, um, I say the same about myself. I, I can't stand that guy, that, that version of me, because I was such a fool. And ask my wife if she would confirm that for you. And the point is, therefore, you are today an immature fool in the eyes of yourself, uh, 10 years, 20 years from now. 10 years from now, you'll look back on yourself today and think, man, I wasn't all that mature back then in 2023. I wish I knew then what I know now. Meaning we're all fools now. So is it still a good idea to tell yourself, just look inward, just follow your heart, follow what your instincts are telling you? No, that's, that's bad advice. That's terrible advice. According to who? You, 10 years from now. We have to acknowledge, therefore, the necessity of inviting in an external authority that is wiser than us and truer than our own hearts, more faithful to us than our own hearts can be in this moment. We do need an external authority to enter in, to teach us, to instruct us, even correct us, and reprove us. We need a better guiding star than our own hearts. And, and the psalmist says elsewhere that very thing. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. And, and the wise man also says in Proverbs that it's the fear of the Lord, uh, placing him above even the fear of my awareness of my own feelings and passions that will make my path smooth and straight. So, we, at least as the people of God, um, want to listen to the word of the Lord because we acknowledge it to be the best authority there is to invite into our lives. It's even better than what I tell myself. Uh, we have to come to the word of God with that mindset, with that attitude of submitting ourselves to it, being subject to it because we believe there's wisdom there concerning life that we don't have. There's truth concerning even ourselves that we don't know. We don't yet know. Um, what I hope Psalm 19 will do for us is, is give us a good review of this. And, um, and even for those of you who are not believers, I hope it introduces you to this Christian understanding of sola scriptura, that scripture is, scripture alone is our highest authority. I want to make uh, two points that, that stem from this psalm. Um, that really stem from the two parts of the psalm. Uh, The first half of Psalm 19 is about God's revelation in creation and how that reveals God's authority in creation. The second part of the psalm is about God's revelation in Scripture and how that reveals 
his authority, and particularly Christ's authority, not only in creation, but in our lives and in our story. So let's look at that one at a time. First, God's revelation uh, in creation and why, why that's authoritative. If you look at verses 1 through 6, you notice that they are about God's creation, but what you also notice immediately is that creation is itself God's revelation given to us. Creation is speech. Uh, verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. They're not just there, being still. The heavens, the space, and the skies, they declare and they proclaim. Verse 2 and 3 are even more explicit. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So, we're not just called to behold creation with our eyes and marvel at creation that way, but we're also called to marvel at creation with our ears. Listen to its speech. Listen to the message. What is, what is the message? What's the content? I think it's similar to what, what the message is conveyed in, in amazing nature photography or documentaries. It's beauty. It's wisdom, it's design, it's glory. The way David sums it up is, the heavens declare the glory of God. Of God. Nature speaks of Him, of His wisdom, of His design. Creation forth, pours forth His speech, pointing us to His nature. And because of that, because we seem to be getting this kind of messaging from creation, it's, it's rational, therefore, for you to look at things that point to beauty and wonder in nature and, and tell yourself it's, it, that's not just a mind trick in my brain playing on me in this purely materialistic, naturalistic universe where there's no immaterial reality, but... There is truly such a thing as meaning and beauty in this world, such a thing as purpose and goodness in this world. So if your heart does echo that, then I think you're listening to what David is, what David is listening to, the same speech, God's speech of his power, his wisdom, his knowledge being poured out in nature. And you can't deny that it is meaningful messaging coming across to you. He says in verse 2, creation reveals knowledge night to night. So as often as he comes out and looks up to marvel at the skies, and back then it would have been the unpolluted skies, uh, he marvels at the beauty of the stars. In our day and age, we, we see all the discoveries made in astronomy, the, the mind-blowing photos from the Hubble telescope, like the Hubble Deep Field. Uh, the shot of just the hundreds, just hundreds of the two trillion galaxies, each with a hundred billion stars within. All of that declares just the vastness, indescribable vastness, infinite vastness, and the power and wisdom of the Creator. How meticulous He is, how grand He is, and how beautiful 
glorious uh, his nature is. So Nicholas Copernicus, the astronomer who first formulated the heliocentric model of the universe, he said, to know the mighty works of God, to comprehend his wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate in degree the wonderful workings of his laws, surely all this must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High. So science originally <laughs> developed as a means of worshiping God, not as a, a means of explaining him away. God was the basis, and still is, the basis of scientific research because you need a basis for believing in the uniformity of nature. And scripture tells us we have that in our maker who holds the universe together. So this is more than science, right? This is a call to worship. Creation calls us to worship, declares the glory of God so that we would give glory to God, to Yahweh for his magnificence, his beauty, his majesty. The message is, come behold his beauty represented in nature, his wisdom represented in nature, his power represented in creation. Worship him. So it takes us beyond simply marveling at an amazing photograph, um, the Grand Canyon, uh, a documentary about the deep waters and the creatures in there. Not simply marvel at that, but to worship respond with worship uh, for your glorious maker. There's a, the famous story of a Bible study teacher who was teaching at a Bible camp, and she used this as an illustration that completely changed a young man's perspective uh, on the course of his entire life. She said, quote, uh, if the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star will be a stack of paper 70 feet high. Then the diameter, of the diameter of the galaxy will be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big the galaxy is. And yet, the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust, virtually, in the whole universe. And the Bible says, God holds this incredibly vast universe together with the word of his power. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? That question was rhetorical, uh, right? No, this is not the kind of being you ask into your life to, to make your life go the way you want it to go. This is the kind of being you fall prostrate and, and worship with all of your being. All you can say to a being like this is, not my will be done, but, but yours. And that changed the, the young man's life, and, and that young man's name is Tim Keller, a pastor and author, many of you know. Christians are people who embrace this idea, even simply by observing God's magnificent creation, that it is God who dictates how we live, just as he dictates how the universe is run. He tells us what's normative, what's right, what's good, and at the same time, what's wrong, what's intolerable, what's offensive. These aren't the things we tell God. These are the things that he tells us. And in the same vein, it is not we who should presume to look down on God and his word and page through his word and say, I like that, I don't like that. 
I'm comfortable with that part, offended by that part. I can tolerate this passage, but I can't tolerate that passage. No, it should be the other way around. God should be the one looking down on us, paging through us, going, I like that. I don't like that. I'm comfortable with that, offended by that. Because he is the creator. He has all authority in this universe. He sustains it all by the word of his power. And therefore, the call is to not simply, again, marvel at his creation, to worship him. And that means to subject ourselves to his authority, to submit ourselves to him. But he gives us more. He gives us more than natural revelation or general revelation in creation. There's also his special revelation, and that is his actual words, the scriptures. And that's the second point. David talks about this starting in verse 7, where he begins to talk about the authority of God's law or his testimony, which is the Old Testament way of describing the scriptures. More than God's indirect speech through creation, we also have his direct speech. We have his inspired word. Or as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 3.16, words breathed out by God himself. And, and for that reason alone, we should elevate special revelation above general uh, revelation. Whether that general revelation is what we see in nature or even what we may discern through our own logic, or tap into emotionally through our feelings. None of those things should be placed side by side, even be placed close to the special revelation of God's direct speech given to us. The word of God, the scriptures, must be our highest authority. And I know most of you agree with that intellectually. And that leads me to make this further point, and that is our priority should be Scripture, yes, but not just saying that, but showing that through the way we lead our lives. Be really honest with yourself for a moment and ask whether this is really true for you. Is Scripture really your highest authority, and not just in name, but in reality? Does it actually control you? When it says do this, do you do it? Because that's authority. Does it function authoritatively in your life? Is it really not your highest authority in name only, but truly respected by you in life, favored by you in life, obeyed by you? in life. Um, there's an episode in the office where Michael Scott um, brings into the office the founder of Thunder Mifflin, the paper company. He brings in Mr. Robert Thunder. And it's supposed to be this very, you know, honorable moment meeting the man who found the, the company. And everyone's like, wow. And they applaud him. And Mr. Dunder begins to give a speech about, you know, the founding of the company and things like that. But just seconds into the speech, 
Michael interrupts him and says, Okay, that's great. Thank you for coming. Robert Dunder, everybody, give him a hand and ushers him out. Basically pushes him out the door and he closes the door and he says, Wow, so inspirational. His intention was not actually to honor uh, Mr. Dunder, but to borrow him for a moment to make the point before you know, Ryan, the young hotshot vice president, that being old still means something good, something important, something positive. He used the old man to prop up an authority that's supposedly higher up than Ryan when in fact, in Michael's life, uh, Robert Dunder had zero authority. Point being, God forbid that we treat scripture like Robert Dunder. The word of God, everybody, round of applause. So inspirational. And you just leave it on the shelf to collect dust. God forbid we treat the word of God as the highest authority in name only and not in life. The Bible is the word of God. Let's treat it as such. Verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect and the testimony of the Lord is sure. If you want to build your life on something perfect and sure, build your life on the word of God. The Bible is a book written by some 40 plus human authors over a period of 1,500 years, 1,500 years. People living in different continents, speaking different languages, but yet there's a miraculous unity to the whole of Scripture, theologically, philosophically, morally, and ethically. And at the center of it all is the person of Jesus Christ. The uh, entire Old Testament conceals him, and the New Testament reveals him. Old Testament foreshadows him, and he, he comes forth as a substance in the New Testament. There are 300 prophecies in the Bible referring to Christ, prophecies from centuries before his birth, all perfectly fulfilled during Jesus' lifetime about how he would be born in Bethlehem, he'd be a descendant of David, he'd be betrayed down to the fact that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. This testimony is sure. This testimony is true. Uh, then there's the manuscript data as well for its historical reliability. The New Testament is in a league of its own when it comes to the number of reliable ancient manuscripts. Uh, just to give you a sense of what's considered historically reliable, the manuscripts containing Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have about 10 ancient copies of those. Plato's writings, seven ancient copies. Homer's Iliad, 643. The number of New Testament manuscripts, 25,000. And by the same historical scientific standards that we used to establish the historicity of Caesar, Plato, Homer, uh, Trojan War, New Testament is in a league of its own. There's no holy book that shares this level of historical reliability. But I'm not sharing any of this with you to say that the word of God is reliable and worthy of our trust and of our submission because it is historically reliable. No, it has that. But more importantly, it's because of how God works through history to show us that his redemptive work is worthy of our trust. Okay. God isn't just working up in space, aligning the stars. He's working here in history where we are 
his meticulousness, his grandness, his wisdom, and his grandeur are found in redemptive history. And we see God is creating something not just so above and beyond that we can't possibly comprehend, like astrophysics and astronomy. He's weaving a story throughout history that is so imminent to us, so near us, so close to us, so evidential to us. God is present here, and he is at work here in humanity. And he is doing something marvelous there too. And that's what makes the word of the Lord and his special revelation so uh, important for us. You can't find this through a telescope, through the Hubble. You have to look in the word of the Lord. So it says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. And that tells us two things, that our souls need reviving. For some reason, it's dying. And that our souls can be revived through the word of the Lord. God is telling us something from his own lips into our own ears. He's saying, I will revive you. I will revive you. He's not saying to us, I'm powerful, and that's all there is to it. I get to dictate how you run your life, and if you fail to comply, I will crush you. He's saying, I will revive you. I'll bring you back to life. You're not on your own, and you don't have to go out searching for your worth and what you can achieve and earn for yourself temporarily. You don't have to find your happiness in people's approval of you and their recognition of you no he knows that none of that will revive us he knows that kind of self-reliance will only cause us to be more anxious and more overworked and more fearful of people he's giving us a better way he's saying i will revive you i will be the one that brings you from the dead back to life he's promising through his word that just as he is he is intimately involved with how the universe and all the stars and the trillions of galaxies are functioning right now. He will be that involved with you, with your well-being, with the wellness of your soul, and to find, therefore, your, your abundant life in Him, in His fullness, in His authority. It reminds me of the, the passage we read during our, our prayer meeting on Friday night from Ephesians 3, where it says, God will do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that he is working in us. He works this new power in us. Where does this power come from? Paul says, the love of Christ that came to us from heaven came to us who were dead in our own sins, lost in our own selfish desires and ambitions. He comes to empty us of ourselves and revive us and fill us with the fullness of God instead. This is how he revives us. So when, when God says in Psalm 19, my word will revive you, what he really means is my son, the word, will come to you and revive you. He will fill you with the fullness of God and cause you to live 
the abundant life that you cannot live on your own because you will know what you are worth to him. You will know how blameless you can be in his sight. You can know the purpose, the true meaning and purpose of your existence if Christ fills you. So nature may teach us uh, God is powerful, he's majestic, he's wise. But it's scripture that reveals to us further that God is also humble and merciful and near. He's so near. So verse 8, it says, scripture, that scripture rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes. And having received this, this revival in your soul, you'll find that his law, his wisdom, his counsel are to be more desired than gold, as it says in verse 10. And it'll be sweet to your taste. And now you'll see that in keeping his word, there's a great reward, greater than material reward, financial reward, material reward. And that's articulated in verses 12 to 14. It's by you becoming discerning and wise. You even discerning the hidden faults that you were unaware of. So you will grow in that self-awareness. You will not let sin have any dominion over you, verse 13. And you will know the joy of living blamelessly, righteously, towards real maturity. And it leads all the way to the climax in verse 14. It's one of my favorite verses in, in all of Scripture. You can live even with the assurance that the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart can be acceptable and pleasing to God. Your words can reach God's ears and bring him pleasure. You can be such a person. You can desire things in your heart, be oriented towards something that God would see and go, wow, you're exactly like me. He, he would see an image reflection of himself in you. And in that, you'll find a joy that no amount of gold, no amount of pleasure can give you. It's the nearness of God. It's the fellowship with God. And this is why he gave us his word. This is why he gave us the word, his son. To make us like him. Like sons and daughters. To draw us that close to our father's heart. Because there's no greater way to live in the fullness of God than that, to live abundant life than that. Why do parents speak to their infants when, they're, when the babies are barely able to comprehend and can't say a word and respond? Why, why do parents speak to their infants? It's in order to give them speech when they have no words. It's to give them speech. In time having received these words from their father, their mother, they would know then how to respond back to their parents. The father speaks to us, his adopted children, through his word. Scriptures are his speech to us. And 
most loudly and, and audibly and, and historically and evidentially, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. All the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, they're merely foreshadowing him and pointing to him. All the scripture testifies concerning him. And that's why when we take up the word, we have to dig him up from the scriptures to search for Jesus, his image, and our need of him more and more. To fellowship with him, that is why we go to the word, is to have fellowship with Jesus. And he will fill us with his abundance, with his fullness, so that our words may continually and our hearts may continually please our Heavenly Father. And that is what we mean by the sufficiency of God's word. We have everything we need in the word of God. Because if we, through this, acquire the fullness of God, a heart that is near God, a heart that is like God's heart, you have everything you need. No matter what the circumstance, what conflict, what trial, what suffering you may face, if you have the fullness of God in you, you have everything you need. You can have the fullness of God in you and be poor. You can have the fullness of God in you and be sick. You can have the fullness of God and lose your job. If you have the fullness of God, you have everything sufficient for life. So, so take up the scriptures and read Search for Jesus here. Let him fill you with his spirit. Remember his words. Share his words. Pray his words. Obey his words. And you'll find that your soul will be revived one degree to the next, day after day, until you reach that promised eternal life. Even now, you experience uh, the abundant life, because even now we have his very own words. So thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is there and who is not silent, that you are a gracious God who draws near to speak to us and, and speak to us in a way that we can hear and understand. Lord, give us ears to hear you. Give us the desire not only to hear, but to do your word. Lord, may we not just give lip service to your authority, but in fact, live according to your authority and do as you command. Live as you command us and live with this confidence, assurance that you are the one reviving our lives. You are the one fulfilling our souls. You are the one authoring and perfecting our story. And so, Lord, may we prioritize hearing from you, your instructions and your guidance and your wisdom for life uh, before we get busy, before we get uh, overworked, before we get weary. Lord, uh, help us sit at your feet and hear you speak through uh, your word for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.